Obadiah, he's our most minor prophet of them all. Does everybody remember why minor versus major? Minor, because it's based on the length of the book, and Obadiah is actually the shortest book in the Old Testament. A little bit of trivia for you there. Um, So we don't have a lot of information on Obadiah, so I'm going to be like, great, we're already going long. So... But we do have a little bit of information about Obadiah that I'll, I'll bring to you this morning. The message of the miners seems like they major on doom until we see it as part of the bigger message. Our loving God is calling us back to a holy and hopeful living aligned with his good purposes. All right, a little bit of background about Obadiah, who I said we don't have much information about. He's not quoted at all in the New Testament. Most of the other prophets are. He's not. There are actually 13 Obadiahs referenced in the Bible. However, we're not really sure if one of those is the same Obadiah. So, again, we still don't know much. One thing we do know about Obadiah is that he delivered the message of God, an an oracle against Edom. He is strong and passionate and full of faith in Yahweh and Israel. Obadiah's central conviction is that God's justice will triumph and be vindicated. Obadiah's name, it means servant or worshiper of Yahweh. Obadiah's father is not mentioned, which seems like, oh, no big deal. My dad's not usually mentioned every time, you know, I'm written about. I'm not written about much. But anyway, um, but that means he's not from a priestly or a kingly line. That's what it means when, when that's not mentioned in Scripture. There's also some uncertainty about when this book was written, which is a little bit interesting. There aren't any kings mentioned in, in Obadiah, so we can't really line that up very well um, as far as a timeline. And... It's widely debated. So I was doing all this research, and I thought, oh, I'm going to land on one and really just own it. But I kept changing my mind all week. (laughs) So um, so here's here's a couple. The rebellion of Edom against Judah during the reign of Jehoram, that would be in 853 to 841 B.C. In this case, Obadiah would be a contemporary of Elisha. The Babylonian attacks on Jerusalem were 605 to 586 B.C. This would make Obadiah a contemporary of Jeremiah, which I was like, this is it. This is what I think it is. Because Jeremiah 49, 7 through 22, has the same language as Obadiah. So I thought, this is it. However, then some commentary said, but it could be that they just had, were looking at a common other piece of information. So I was like, oh, I can't stand there. So then I looked up something else, and it said that most scholars land in 587 to 538 BC, sometime during the Babylon exile of the kingdom of Judah, after King Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. You get to decide. I have no idea. But I got some information. That's all I got. Poor Obadiah. The main theme of Obadiah is pride, like Kayla said. And I will say it's good for me to teach on pride because it is my signature sin. So great. I know. I bet you're thrilled to hear that. 
I actually hate this about myself, but, you know, when it's you, you got to... And they say awareness is the first step to recovery, so I'm working on it. And this week, I worked on it hard. I was working with two high school students in the youth room. We were hanging some lights, and I climbed up on a couch and promptly fell onto the ground. And that's enough for someone who struggles with pride. That's enough. You fell down in front of two high schoolers. Then the high schooler said, oh, my gosh, that totally reminds me of when my grandma fell this week. Oh, That's why God put me in 23 years of youth ministry. (laughs) Keeps you humble. It got worse. The other one stood up. She's like, let me do this, right? And because I'm working on my pride, I handed her the string of lights, and she stood up on the couch, and everything was fine. Now you're wondering, how do you know this is your signature sin? How can I find out what my signature sin is, right? I knew you wanted to know. There's actually something called the Enneagram, and, it, and you can guess um, uh, who, what personality uh, you have based on your signature sin. So look up there, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's me. Okay, but it doesn't really matter. If you want to take this test, you can take There's a little app, the Enneagram app, if you want to find out what your signature sin. This was created by the Desert Fathers long ago so that they could actually learn how they needed to repent so that they could grow in their relationship with Christ. It's actually a great thing um, to work on, and if you have pride issues as well, we can go to the youth room and stand on couches and let the youth gather around. Um, But I want us to talk about and focus on uh, pride today. If you have a different signature sin, that's that's fine. Um, The reason the Edomites had such pride was actually mainly based on their physical location, okay? That was the first thing. They thought they were untouchable to enemies. They also had a great financial status, and we'll get into that a little later. So they thought they had everything they needed. They didn't need anything else. They also had some great allies. So they thought, we are untouchable because we have some great allies. And they also thought they were mentally better than other people. And I'll get into why they thought that as well. So I decided to name this sermon, The Pride Before the Fall, right? (laughs) It's pretty good. I didn't make it up. Um, God wrote it. It's in Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. Physically, they couldn't be touched because they had impregnable defenses. It says in Obadiah 3 and 4, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home in the, on the heights. You who say to yourself, Who can bring me down to the ground, though you soar like an eagle and make a nest among the stars? I just watched a little thing yesterday about eagles. They're very territorial. And if you step below their nest, I did not know this, you will get attacked. Just a warning. Okay. These people were territorial. They were way high up. Um, now, I decided to use the same map that we used uh, last week for um, uh, Amos so we could kind of get an idea. So Amos was from to- uh, the Tekoa up there by Jerusalem. And so now we're talking about Edom right over here. Okay, so... The Edom is right below the Dead Sea, 
the Salt Sea as it's listed there. And then to the east of Edom is actually desert land. So that protected them a lot. They, could, they, could, they had some good natural protection. But then I found this video this week as I was learning more about the land, the lay of the land in Edom. And um, I'm going to just talk over the video so that you can get an idea of, of what it looked like. So this is where you would try to enter into Edom. It's not very wide. Notice the, the people there. They think they're untouchable because of the natural strength and security because they are located in large red sandstone cliffs over 5,000 feet above sea level, making it very easy to be fortified so that they were free to wage war on others and not worry about people attacking them in return. The word Edom means red for the red sandstone. The mountains of Edom have caves and houses cut into the side of the mountain surrounding Petra. And Petra is the capital of the city, and you can see the temple right through there. The Edomites built almost impregnable fortresses in the canyons and the gorges of these mountains. The passage to the city of Petra exists only by entering through this narrow gorge called the Seek. The Seek is a narrow entry with high walls, and the Seek leading into the capital of the city was only about 15 to 20 feet wide and a mile long, and it was easy for Edom to protect itself. Edom could defend itself against a huge army, even with just a small amount of people, because that opening was so narrow. And all of this led to great confidence and pride that no one could touch them physically. Petra, the ancient city, was recently voted one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. However, the Sikh and the temple at the end of it was popularized in the American culture of the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. you see it? And what did you find, Junior? Junior? Dad? Please, what does it always mean? This is Junior. That's his name. Henry Jones, Junior. Like Indiana. We're named the dog Indiana. Maybe go home now, please. The dog? <laughs> you are named after the dog? <laughs> Got a lot of fond memories of that dog. <laughs> Ready? Ready? Indy! Henry! Follow me! I know the way! Ha! Got lost in his own museum, huh? Uh-huh. After you, Junior. Yes, sir. This afternoon, maybe you can watch the beginning of it. That's the very end. But when I saw that, I just thought, wow, only really one horse fits through there. And it made more sense to me why they were so prideful about their location. Here's, an, here's, an, here's a, a piece. A large earthquake happened in 363 A.D., and it destroyed half the city of Edom. Now, Petra never recovered from this destruction, and it is believed that God did this. 
that this was the demise of Petra that had been talked about through the prophets Jeremiah and Obadiah. Obadiah describes the lofty places of Petra and the confidence of its inhabitants. Jeremiah prophesied that Petra would lose its power and become uninhabited. I'm pretty sure that acts of God and earthquakes come in the same sentence with insurance people. Is this true? Is there an insurance person in the house? I don't see our insurance guy. But it makes me think about this was probably predicted and actually happened. On that note of insurance, financially, these people thought they had they were untouchable because part of what they they had was they were on the route from Syria to Egypt. So way up at the top is Syria and way down here is Egypt. And so if there was going to be some goods exchanged between Syria and Egypt, they had to go through Edom. And Edom took full advantage of that. They would charge um, uh, tolls, shall we say, um, going through their little area. And so they had to, uh, if if they wanted to sell their wares, they had to go through Edom. So Edom became very financially well-to-do because of that. Edom believed that no one could touch them financially. Obadiah 5, 6, If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape, grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau has ransacked his hidden treasures. Remember, the Edomites are descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. This grape pickers thing, we're like, that's weird. We don't, we don't pick many grapes in our, in our world. But in biblical times, no matter what kind of farm you had, if you were a farmer, you would leave a little bit so that the poor had some place to glean and, and survive. That's, was, that's how they would survive. But what God is saying here in this passage is, I'm sorry, Edom, we're, we're not going to leave you anything, nothing. There will be nothing left for you. All that wealth and all those treasures that you've gotten from these people who have come through, there will be nothing left. Verse 11, On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Which leads us to another area of pride, and that is that they felt like they didn't need God because they had allies. This is what pride is. It's basically saying we don't need God. When I stood up on that couch, I was not praying. I just thought I I had this. I got this. That's pride, saying that we don't need God. These people, the Edomites, thought they had enough allies that they didn't need God to protect them. So they decided to join in with the Babylonians, and attacked Jerusalem. After the city fell, the Edomites pillaged the land. They even captured people. And if they didn't kill them, they sold them into slavery. When King David and Solomon were king of Edom, and when King David and Solomon were king, they were in charge of Israel and Edom. 
after this, kings knew they were good or not if they could take over Edom. It became a place that people, that kings tried to conquer. They no longer had their allies. Psalm 137, 7 through through 9. Remember, Lord, that the Edomites did on the day of Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. When the Edomites needed help, there there were no allies. This is a horrible couple of verses. 9 and 10. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against rocks. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will, be, you will be covered with shame and you will be destroyed forever. Basically, what you've done to other people will be done to you. The Edomites were descendants of Esau, the twin brother of Jacob, and they attacked Jacob's land. And because Edom had celebrated his brother's disaster and rejoiced in the destruction of Judah, this is what Obadiah says to him, to them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune or rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not match. March through the gates of my people on the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. Now, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the opposite of gloating is actually forgiveness. And you might be thinking, what? That makes no sense. Hang with me. I I was just thinking about it this way. The reason I say this is because the opposite of gloating over someone's demise is actually wishing them well. And you can know you've actually forgiven someone if you can wish them well. Think about this for a moment. Think about someone that has done something really awful to you. You can know that you're wishing you've forgiven them because you're like, oh, yeah, I hope life goes well. It doesn't mean I want to interact with them again, but I do hope that their life goes well. Until that point, there's still a little bit of forgiveness that maybe needs to come, okay? Verse 14, you should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. The Edomites thought they didn't need God because they had strong allies. Lastly, the Edomites thought that they were better than the rest of the world mentally. Okay? They believed they knew it all. Why? For the same reason they were rich. People were passing through Edom so regularly that they were bringing all sorts of different culture and teaching to the Edomites. They were learning and growing and getting smarter and smarter. And then they realized we are intellectually superior to everyone. And what ended up happening is they started to look down on others and let people know that they were superior. When we get to that place where we think we are intellectually better than other people, we treat people like they are less than. I think all of us can raise our hand and say, I've done that before. But that's not 
how it works in the kingdom of God. These four forms of pride, physical, financial, allies, and mental, are all forms of saying that we, or they, don't need God. And it led to their punishment. I liked the way the message translation said uh, Proverbs 16, 18. First pride, then the crash, the the bigger ego, the harder the fall. God let them know that there would be two phases to their demise. One, they would be held captive and shame would cover them. Two, be followed by extinction. Edom was deceived by their own pride. Both the prophet Jeremiah and Obadiah tried to warn them, but Edom did not heed these warnings. So instead of being known for greatness, this is what they became known for. Obadiah 18, Esau will be stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors of Esau. The Lord has spoken. The next several verses go on to say who took over and who inhabited that land. But the very last line in Obadiah says this, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. In the end, Edom loses it all. They had nothing left. God reclaims the land that they thought they had full control over. They thought they had figured everything out in their lives. They thought in every way possible they were the best. Now, as I was thinking about pride versus humility this week, I I felt confused, but I thought God used us. I thought God gave us gifts that we could share with other people. And then I came across 2 Chronicles 7.14, and this, this helped sum it up for me. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. So I want you to think for a moment. In what ways are you saying to God, I don't need you? I've got this financially, physically, I associate with the right people. Anybody feel that? Or mentally even. I'm intellectually better than everybody else. How are you telling God that you don't need him? How could you make a shift this week to seek God's face And to allow God to be a part of the physical, financial, your, your associates, and even your intellect a little bit more. Now, some of you might know, for the last two years in my free time, I've been writing a book. I haven't talked about it that much because it always feels really boastful when I start to talk about it. But the reality is, is I've been really humbled by being asked. It was Helen Lee, who works at InterVarsity Press, who invited me to write this book a couple years ago. 
And Helen at midwinter, she and I sat down and she slid this little button across the table to me. And it, it says, love mercy, do justice, and write humbly. And as she slid it across, she said, now only the authors get to, to wear these buttons. But it stirred something in me. Write humbly. I had just finished. <laughs> and I thought to myself, have I written humbly? All of Ivy Press that I've interacted with are humble people. And the great thing that they were able to do is they were able to scratch through my pride. And they would ask me one question anytime I would write something that was a little too braggy. Does this fit your intent? And I was able to ask myself, not my intent, does this fit God's intent? So that's the question I want to leave with you today. What you're doing, how you're living, everything in your life, does it fit God's intent for your life? Let's pray. God, you know our hearts. You know our minds. You know where we live. You know the things that we feel really confident about in our lives. And you have given us many, many gifts in this room. And I ask God that we would come before you this morning and that we would allow our gifts to be yours again. And that we would give them over to you fully so that we can humbly come before you and serve. In your holy name we pray. Amen.